Welcome to a recording from a Latrobe Asia public event. Does China pose a threat to Australia? What should our China policy be? Almost no question is of greater significance for Australia's future than the emergence of China as an economic and military great power. In this public event, Hugh White and Clive Hamilton debate the important question of the threat that China poses to Australian security. The event was introduced by Latrobe University Vice Chancellor Professor John Dewar and was moderated by Latrobe University International Relations Scholar Dr. Rebecca Strating. The event was an Ideas and Society debate in association with Latrobe Asia. It was held at the State Library of Victoria on the 6th of March 2019. Well, good evening, everyone. Great to see so many of you here. My name is Professor John Dewar, and I'm the Vice Chancellor of Latrobe University. I'd like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people as the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet this evening and pay my respects to their elders past and present. I'm really delighted to be here tonight, not just to welcome you to this event, but also to open uh, this season of the Latrobe debates, which is being presented in partnership with Latrobe Asia. Our Vice-Chancellor's Fellow, Professor Robert Mann, has been running our Ideas and Society program since 2010. In doing so, Rob has created a forum for intelligent and thought-provoking discussion of some of the most important issues facing our nation and the global community. This year, the Ideas and Society program is taking things one step further in presenting the Latrobe debates. And what Rob has done is put together a stunning list of speakers and topics for a series of discussions between leading Australians who hold genuinely different points of view. And tonight's uh, speakers are a good example of that. But we need these types of discussion more than ever before. Anyone who logs onto the internet these days is at risk of entering into an echo chamber that simply reinforces already held beliefs and opinions, or which polarizes debate even further by simplifying issues into crude categories of progressive or conservative. The Latrobe debates intend to be an intelligent alternative. We will hear different perspectives, but the debates are not a place for the kind of posturing or parochialism we sometimes see from those sometimes described as cultural warriors. These discussions will be intelligent and nuanced, so we will see the colour in what are too often matters cast in black and white. So let me just give you a taste of what's to come later in the year. Tim Suparmazan, the former Race Discrimination Commissioner, and Tom Switzer, who was the opinion editor at The Australian, will consider whether Australia still has a serious racism problem in a discussion that will be moderated by La Trobe's brilliant Emeritus Professor of Politics, Judith Brett. Two of the nation's leading feminists, Clementine Ford and Petra Buskins, will discuss what type of feminism we need. And they will be joined by another brilliant Latrobe woman as moderator, historian Claire Wright. And president of the Australian Human Rights Commission, Gillian Triggs, will debate with Greg Craven, the vice-chancellor of the Australian Catholic University, whether Australia needs a human rights charter with another fantastic Latrobe woman moderating, this time our distinguished alumna, Tasneem Chopra. One of the debates on coal and climate change scheduled for later in the year 
between the CEO of the Coal Council, Greg Evans, and CEO of Greenpeace in Australia, David Ritter, promises to be an absolute cracker. Another between Julian Burnside and Frank Brennan on asylum seeker policy will reveal the significance of small differences. So there's a lot to look forward to. And if the popularity of tonight's debate is anything to go by, don't hold back in getting your tickets now. But if you do happen to miss out, we're pleased that the debates will be broadcast on Radio National's Big Ideas program. Now, I'm going to introduce tonight's discussants in a moment, but first let me make a few remarks about tonight's topic. Australia's relationship with China, or looked at from the other end of the telescope, China's relationship with the rest of the world is possibly one of the most talked-about topics in the media. And there can't be anyone left who is not aware of China's rise. Never before have we seen growth occur at the speed and the scale we have seen in China. And the country's rise has had an enormous impact around the globe and in our region. China has become the world's second largest economy and has fundamentally changed global institutions and structures governing economics, politics, and the environment. And yet China's transformation has been integral to Australia's longest period of economic growth. And while many new opportunities have opened up, there is much to consider in analysing Australia's response to China's rise. And the issues can really be boiled down to the question on which tonight's discussants have quite different views. How accommodating of China should we be? Now, universities have, from time to time, found themselves tangled up in these issues, so I'm looking forward to hearing what the discussants have to say. So let me introduce them now. Hugh White closest to me is Emeritus Professor of Strategic Studies at the Australian University, National University's Strategic and Defence Studies Centre. He's been an intelligence analyst, a journalist, a senior staffer to Defence Minister Kim Beasley and to Prime Minister Bob Hawke, a senior official in the, De in the Defence Department and was the first director of the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. Hugh was the principal author of Australia's 2000 Defence White Paper, and his books include The China Choice, Why America Should Share Power, and Without America, Australia's Future in the New Asia. But I'd like to think that his best is yet to come, <coughs> because it's being published in July by La Trobe University Press <laughs> through our publishing partnership with Black Ink. And I'm delighted to acknowledge the presence here tonight of Maurice Schwartz, uh, the publisher of Black Ink. And we're delighted to be releasing Hugh's how to Defend Australia, in which he makes the case for a reconceived defence of Australia. At the far end, Clive Hamilton is the Professor of Public Ethics at Charles Sturt University. He was the founder and for 14 years Executive Director of the progressive think tank, the Australia Institute. His books include Requiem for a Species, Why We Resist the Truth About Climate Change, and Defiant Earth, The Fate of Humans in the Anthropocene. Clive's controversial 2018 book, Silent Invasion, China's Influence in Australia, was a bestseller and led to invitations to speak literally around the world, including testifying before a US congressional committee and the Australian Parliament. We are absolutely delighted that Hugh and Clive will be joined by the director of La Trobe's Bachelor of International Relations and senior lecturer 
in our Department of Public Politics and Philosophy, Beck Straiting. Beck researches and teaches in the areas of Australian and Southeast Asian politics and foreign policy. In 2018, she was awarded the prestigious Boyer Prize by the Australian Institute of International Affairs for the best article published in the Australian Journal of International Affairs in 2017. Her most recent book, The Post-Colonial Security Dilemma, Timor-Leste and the International Community, was published in 2018 with the Institute of Southeast Asian Studies, just one of the many extraordinary women at La Trobe. It's now my great pleasure to hand over to Beck to get the inaugural La Trobe debate underway. Over to you, Beck. Thank you, John. Uh, it's really great to be here to moderate tonight's proceedings. And it's great to see, uh, I think it's a full house here tonight, and the wait list is very long. So it's great to see so much enthusiasm uh, around the, the first debate in this Ideas and Society series. Uh, before we begin, I would just like to outline the structure of tonight's debate. Each speaker will have around 20 minutes to deliver their opening address, uh, which will be followed by some panel discussion before I open it up to the audience for what will be short and sharp questions, no doubt. Uh, and the debate will conclude uh, with a short right of reply from each of our speakers. So, enough from me, let's get into it. Please uh, join me in welcoming our first speaker for tonight, Hugh White. Well, thanks very much, Beck. It's a great pleasure to be here. It's intimidating to be here when one hears all the other debates that uh, Rob Mann has lined up. Thanks all for coming. Thanks, Alice, for putting it all together. It's great to be in the hands of people who really know how to organise events. Thanks to John for his uh, introduction, and Beck, thanks for sharing us this evening. Thanks especially to Robert Mann for inviting me to take part in this event and for the role he plays, the unique role he plays in improving the quality of Australian intellectual life. And, of course, thanks to Clive for accepting Rob's invitation to share this platform with me and to conduct this debate. Views like his, the kinds of views he's been putting forward, are a very important part of a very important debate, and I welcome an opportunity to exchange views on them with you tonight. Rob invited us, both of us, to participate in this forum because we differ on some important issues, but it's important to start by being clear about what we agree on. We certainly agree on the importance of the question of Australia's relations with China and how we should manage it. I think we agree on the scale of China's ambition, both its ambition as an Asian power and its ambition to exercise influence over Australia. We agree that, at times at least, Clive might say more than that, but at times at least, that ambition, the influence that China's ambitious to exercise over Australia could easily be malign. And I think we'd agree that one reason why it's reasonable for us to fear that is the nature of the Chinese political system and some aspects of its governing party. And I think we agree that the government and much of Australia's intellectual community... Um, and by government, I don't just mean the government of the day, I mean our political system. I think both sides of politics and our public service have been complacent 
about the rise of China's power and what that means for China's capacity to influence Australia and that they need prodding pretty hard to get less complacent and start taking the issue seriously. So on all of those very important points, there's a lot in which we agree. So what do we disagree on? I think there are two core things. The first is the nature and scale of the current problems. How big a threat or challenge or whatever China poses to us today. There's been a lot of debate about that, particularly in the wake of Clive's book. And one of the great virtues of the book is that it's generated that debate. I don't want to focus on that particular difference here now, though, because there's another thing we disagree on, which I think is a lot more important. And that is, how do we handle it? How do we handle China's growing power and what it means for Australia? I think, and, and this is an important opportunity to clarify whether we each understand one other's views correctly, I, I think Clive's argument is that the present challenge we face from China is more dire than I think it is, but that it's easy to deal with. I think it's not so bad yet, but that it's much, much harder to deal with than I think his arguments suggest. And the difference about how hard it is to deal with uh, leads to different views about what we should do about it. And that's what I want to explain. So. How, how do we escape China's clutches? What, what kinds of things can we do to ameliorate the kinds of things that, as I say, to different degrees, both Clive and I agree we have to worry about? I think, surveying the bait, it's possible to see three broad propositions that are put forward. The first is we should get out from under China's economic heel by diversifying our, our economic um, dependency on China, diversifying away from China, finding other markets and sources of investment and so on. The second is what I might slightly crudely call internal control, and that is measures to restrict what China does in Australia, to prevent activities or to suppress organisations or indeed to suppress ideas which we believe promote China's interests and objectives. And the third is to try and manage the problem at its source by containing powers, China's growing power and influence more broadly. Now, options one and two have clear merit. It clearly makes sense to do whatever we can to diversify away from China economically. We have become, I think it's 38% of our exports these days are going to China. It, it, by, by any prudent standards, that's too many eggs in one basket. But it is worth bearing in mind that diversifying away from China will mean uh, reducing economic opportunities because no country in the world on present trends, or no group of countries, offers us, so far as we can see, the potential, the economic potential, the economic opportunities that China offers us in future. So if we choose to turn our back on those opportunities, which might be a prudent thing to do, it will cost us economically, and that's just not a matter of greed, though there is a lot of greed involved, we're talking about a lot of money after all, but it's also a matter of Australia's economic well-being, and that means Australians' economic well-being, the economic well-being of average men and women, and that's not something to be done lightly. So there are limits to what they can do for us. The second thing we can do, as I say, is control. And I think there are clear merits, things we should be doing, and some things that governments have started doing. 
to manage the way in which China and, for that matter, other countries can operate in, this, in, in, in our society, in our system, in ways that we would regard as malign. But I do think we have to recognise there are clear limits to that. Because down that path lies, not very far down that path, lies significant limits on freedoms we value. For example, there lies the limits to political participation by Australian citizens on the basis of origin or belief. And that's something I think we need to be very careful about. So both of those are steps of measures we should take, but I think we should be very cautious about how far that can get us, particularly how far that can get us in the wake of, the, of, a, of a rising power of the scale and strength that China is going to exercise, as John mentioned in his introductory remarks. But what I really want to focus on is the third of those options, the idea that rather than trying to manage the problem here at home by diversifying economically or controlling what China does domestically, we should reach out with others, or rather we should rely on others to reach out, to solve the problem at source by preventing China growing the power and influence which gives it the capacity to shape what happens in Australia in malign ways. We might call it containment, because that's what we're talking about. It's a loaded term, for those of you who know a little bit of 20th century history. And it has clear appeal, because the best way to solve the problem, obviously, is to prevent China acquiring the kind of power and influence which would allow us to do things in this country we wouldn't want it to do. To contain its bid for leadership in Asia, to compel it to conform to the rules-based order, to use the government's phrase, which has served Asia and Australia so well for so long. Uh, and uh, to do that primarily by supporting the United States in maintaining US leadership, the US leadership which has underpinned the rules-based order, and to support the United States in resisting China's challenge and containing its, its ambitions for growing influence. This is the heart of Australian government policy today, so far as I can tell, it's the heart of the opposition's policy today and it's the default position for a very large proportion of what you might broadly call Australia's foreign policy community. And I would make the observation that there's a great deal of confidence that it's going to work, a great deal of confidence that we can, in fact, we collectively, can, in fact, persuade, compel, cajole China to just back off, get back in its box. And I think that confidence goes a long way to explain the complacency which both Clive and I are anxious about. goes a long way to explain the idea that Australian political leaders and business leaders and all sorts of other people just don't seem to be worrying about the fact that China's power is growing and seem to be prepared to go along with things which, when you're in the kind of alarm bells that uh, Clive's book so colourfully rings, make you think, oh, wow, what are we thinking about? I don't think it's just subservience or self, self-servingness. I think, I think it is a confidence, a misplaced confidence, that this is all going to be fine because somehow we can persuade the Chinese to back off. And that confidence is based purely and simply in a faith in America, a faith in America's power and resolve, a faith that America will be able to limit China's power, preserve the US-led order, force the Chinese to back off. And let me be crystal clear, that would be great if it worked. Nobody in Australia 
is more enthusiastic about American leadership in Asia than I am. I just don't think it's going to work. It would be the best outcome, but I do think it's very unlikely. It's very unlikely because I think China is going to be very hard to persuade to back off. It is, after all, not just the world's second biggest or biggest, depending on how you do the sums, economy in the world. It is by miles, by miles, the, 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 the strongest economy ever to confront the United States as a strategic rival. The Soviet Union, at its very height, never had an economy that was bigger than half the size of America's. If you believe the Australian Treasury, figures published in the DFAT white paper at the end of 2017, their estimate is that in 2030, what's that, 11 years from now, China's economy would be 42 trillion and America's would be 24. 42 to 24. Now, long-term predictions of GDP are hardly worth the paper they're written on. So the margin of error is pretty high. So for working, can I just, just say it's double? Double. So the idea that America can compel, persuade, cajole, whatever China to back off, a China which, as Clive's book very vividly points out, is, is driven by a very intense sense of China's past history, its present achievements, its future greatness, and, of course, the self-interest of the Communist Party. Well, there's no historical precedent for a country that has grown as far and fast as China has not seeking to overturn the order in which it exists, and there is absolutely no sign so far of China backing off. So I won't say that it's, it's theoretically impossible. It's possible that China might back off. But I think it's extremely unlikely, and it's very unwise of Australia, to presuppose that it can, that it, that it will work. So if it doesn't, if China doesn't back off, then there are two other outcomes left. One is that the US and China, that the United States doesn't back off either, and the US and China's rivalry in Asia over who is going to be the leading power in the world's most dynamic region escalates. And that carries with it a very real risk of war. I'll come back to that in a minute. The second possibility is the United States backs off. If China doesn't back off, and the alternative to escalating rivalry and a high risk of conflict is, the, is America backs off. So I want to look at those two in just a little bit more detail because it's very important for us to understand where this is heading. I think if, the two, if, neither, side, if neither of them back off, if we can't expect China to back off and we don't want America to back off, then the intensification of the strategic rivalry, which we have already seen intensifying over the last few years is, as close as anything is in human affairs, inevitable. War is not inevitable. Very important point. Thucydides was wrong. War is not inevitable. It's just very likely. How likely? Well, um, Graham Allison of Harvard did a snazzy study, looked at 16 case studies of rising powers meeting established powers, and the good news is that in only 12 of them did it lead to a disastrous, catastrophic, hegemonic war. Four, they got away with it. So it's a 75% chance. Now, I'm being a bit flippant, because it really is a very serious issue. Of course, war between the US and China is not inevitable, but the further the rivalry escalates, the more serious the risk becomes. And this is just the kind of issue that great powers do go to war with other great powers over. 
And this possibility is accepted in Canberra. This is not something which people in the decision-making circles in Australia's foreign policy community repudiate as completely impossible. And most say, let me generalise, but I think I'm justified in doing this, most of the consensus opinion amongst what you might call the senior hundred people in the Australian foreign policy and the strategic policy community is that if necessary, if China doesn't back off, we should be willing, we should encourage the United States to go to war with China rather than accept American, uh, uh, Chinese primacy in Asia and we should be willing to support them in doing that. We should be willing to go to war, for example, over the South China Sea or Taiwan because a war over the South China Sea or Taiwan would be a war over which, would, which of them would be the dominant power in Asia and to avoid China becoming the dominant power of Asia, we should, be, we should encourage America to fight such a war and join such a war ourselves. And I might say that possibility is the de facto basis of Australian defence policy today. It's pretty hard to draw a line of best fit through the miasma of absurd decisions that constitute Australian defence policy these days, though that's not the subject of tonight's lecture. But when you try, what you get is that Australia is building a force whose primary function is to support the United States in a war with China. So whether you think that's right, I mean, it's an important question. Do we, think that's a, do we think that's right or not? One of the things that really strikes me about this debate is the insouciance with which the Australian strategic policy community and I'm including ministers and leaders of, of, uh, on both sides of politics, um, the insouciance with which they embrace this idea. Yeah, sure, OK, let's do that. Well, no, stop, pause, and ask, what kind of war are we talking about? Now, not all wars are created equal. This is not like going to war in Iraq in 2003. Oh, that wasn't a great idea. There is no swift victory in a conflict between America and China. Neither side has the capacity to win the kind of easy, cheap, manifestly successful outcome that every politician and military commander hopes when the war begins. In fact, a very costly stalemate in which both sides lose large numbers of ships and aircraft is by far and away the most likely operational outcome. And what flows from that is a high likelihood of escalation to the nuclear level. Now, I don't want to go on about this, but it is just incredibly important to recognise that these two countries are nuclear powers. Since the end of the Cold War, we, and I don't just mean we in Australia, though I include we in Australia, around the world, we've gotten incredibly complacent about the existence of nuclear weapons and the potential for their use. The chances of a, of a US-China conflict over Taiwan or the South China Sea or whatever escalating through the nuclear threshold is high. The chances of that escalating to an exchange of of warheads against one another's homelands is high. And that means that there's a very high chance of this becoming the worst war in history. We don't understand what's at stake in the question of China's rise and our response to it if we don't understand that that is central to the question. One of the differences between me and most other people in this debate is the centrality I place to that. We really do not want to lose sight of that possibility. Now, that's not to say that there could be no circumstances under which we would be justified in going to war with China. There are, I think there are circumstances. But they are very, very grave. I think they're much worse than what we know about China today. That's a perfectly legitimate subject for debate, but, my goodness, we better debate it. We better not just slide into it. Because it's a terrible choice. 
a choice to support the United States in a war with China would transform this country like nothing has done since European settlement. It would make World War I look like a picnic. So here's the good news. There's a fair chance it won't happen because there's a fair chance that America will back off. That's the other option. And that's how you avoid war, by the way, in Allison's study. Before they didn't go to where they didn't go to war, the other one side backed off. So America could back off. And as a matter of fact, I think that's probably what will happen. I think this is a more likely outcome than the little apocalyptic vision I just gave you. And that's not just because of Donald Trump, although he's a pretty big part of the story. Even without Trump, under any conceivable precedent, the underlying reality is that the costs to America of containing China's ambitions in Asia, in, a, in China's own backyard, in East Asia, in China's own backyard, exceed the interests America has in preserving its position in Asia. Because in the end, this is not, China, this is not America's backyard, it's China's backyard. America's interests in this part of the world are big, but they're not that big. And that's a very contentious proposition I've just thrown out there. If I could spend more time on it, I won't. The fact is that... Uh, our faith that America has the power and resolve, the willingness to pay the costs and bear the burdens of confronting and containing China in Asia is based on a sense of continuity. That's what America has done in the past. Sure, but America has never faced a rival like China before. And so I think the most likely outcome is that sometime sooner or later, the US will withdraw, and probably quite sooner. And what happens then? Well, some hope that the rest of us, India, Japan, Australia, Indonesia, maybe a few of the others, will together, will gang together and push back against China and prevent it becoming the dominant power. Again, I can't rule that out. And how effectively we learn to cooperate depends a little bit on how China behaves. But on all the evidence we have so far, that's very unlikely to happen. It's certainly not something we can depend on. Many of the other countries in Asia wouldn't really resist. Those that did, like Japan, would look after themselves. They wouldn't have a very strong incentive to cooperate. India will have a very strong interest in, in making sure that China doesn't dominate the Indian Ocean, for example. I'm not going to worry so much about the rest of us. And why should they? So, we do face a new situation. China's rise and its ambitions to become the dominant power in East Asia uh, are going to, I think, be very hard to stop. And that means that we are going to end up, we, Australia, are going to end up in a very new situation. For the first time in our history since European settlement, first time since 1788, no Anglo-Saxon global power will be here to make Asia safe for us, which has been the essential condition of our place in the world and our place in Asia ever since 1788. China will end up with more influence over Australia than any other country has ever had in our history except for those two great allies and of course all of the links of history, culture, language, tradition, values and so on that we all know about will not be true of China. Now I don't want to overstate what that means is a broad proposition, China will become extremely influential. It won't mean it, it, will be, it will control us, or at least it won't control us if we make our choices right, because we will have choices. We will, we will be able to make choices about how we respond to China's pressure, 
But we won't be able to make those choices without paying prices for them. That's what power in the international system means. What a great power can do to a power like Australia is to impose costs on us when we make choices that they don't like. We can still make the choices, at least up to, an up to the point of military intervention, but China can impose costs on us for doing it. Now, th that kind of way of seeing it in national politics, which most countries in the world, most small and middle powers in the world, have learnt through their history, is something we haven't learnt something we as a country are naive about, because almost uniquely in the world, we've always had these great and powerful friends. So our great challenge is to recognise how hard it's going to be to avoid China's uh, growing influence and how different it's going to be for us trying to manage our way forward in the face of that influence. It's no good hoping it won't happen. The wolf won't go away if we wave our arms about and shout at it. We have to be prepared to live with the wolf, but also not panic. We don't have to surrender everything, but we do have to choose our battles wisely, use our limited resources prudently to make sure we defend what really matters to us. And that means we have to have a national discussion about what does really matter to us. It's easy to see all of our values and all of our institutions and all our principles as equally valuable. And of course, one would like to hang on to them all. But the reality is, Faced with a, power as, a country as powerful as China, we are going to have to make some adjustments. That's not good news. I'm just saying I think that's what's going to happen and we have to respond to it as intelligently as we can. And a critical part of that is going to be to understand exactly how China's power and influence threatens our interests and values. What exactly the Chinese want? How exactly they can work here? And it's important neither to best case that or to worst case it. We can get that wrong by assuming, as some people, I think, in the Australian debate, do that. That's fine, don't worry. The Chinese are terribly nice people. I don't buy that. But it's also, I think, wrong to think that it's just all terrible. In fact, it's a very complex story. The China of today is an extraordinary complex story, and we have to understand it in all its complexity if we're going to learn to make those judgments in the sophisticated way we need to do. We also, I might say, and thanks to John for the plug, we also have to be prepared to draw some real lines. I do think an essential part of that is making sure that as a country we have the military capability to defend ourselves against China if that's necessary. And that's what my forthcoming book is all about. Thank you very much. Thank you, Hugh. And please join me in welcoming our second speaker, Clive Hamilton. Thanks very much, uh, Beck, and uh, to the Vice-Chancellor, John Dewar, for uh, introducing the event, particularly to uh, my uh, mate, Rob, for um, pressing me to engage in, in this debate a bit reluctantly, I have to say, but it's been very good to, to be drawn out of one's uh, comfort zone. And thanks to Alice, too, for his fantastic organisation. And for Hugh, for presenting um, a very uh, compelling argument, as, as he uh, typically does. Uh, and, of course, his arguments have been very influential in the Australian uh, public debate, which is why it's a bit daunting to uh, have to uh, take him on. Um, but nevertheless, uh, needs must. Um, so... 
our China policy has to be based. It's kind of a platitude, but has, except it's not for everyone, based on an accurate understanding of the nature of the Chinese Communist Party regime, its objectives and its modus operandi. And I'll argue that Hugh's analysis of the situation Australia faces is so wrong uh, because he doesn't understand the nature of the CCP regime. Uh, in fact, Hugh, uh, although he just changed his view a bit at the end there, has actually argued uh, that we don't need to understand the nature of the Communist Party regime uh, in China. I'll get to that. And so, in responding, I take my cue mainly from Hugh's uh, most detailed account of his theory, and I'm going to concentrate on a critique of Hugh because it really lays out an alternative understanding of the situation and Australia's position in it, which um, is a, an understanding that dictates uh, what our China policy should be, and I hope to get to a little bit uh, more uh, positive, if you like, response towards the end. So I'll take my cue from Hugh's from his influential quarterly essay, Without America, of November 2017. Hugh's theory of history is simple. Uh, the world is driven uh, by great power rivalry. The dominant power is challenged by the rising power, whose ascendancy is a function overwhelmingly of its economic strength. Sooner or later, the declining power must give way unless it's willing to go to war. In the nuclear age... Going to war means uh, risking massive destruction at home. So it boils down to which of the rival powers can convince the other it's more willing to use its nukes. And Hughes um, doubled down on that tonight. In this bull-elephant theory of history, smaller nations must choose between the dominant but declining power and the rising power. This bilateral view is in uh, Charles Edel's uh, uh, a commentary, exactly how Beijing frames the contest, purely as great power rivalry with all other states relegated to bit parts. Pervading all of Hughes' uh, writings is a mood of uh, regretful truth-telling. For those who think uh, the United States will continue to support us, he writes, alas, international relations don't wor work that way. In fact, alas is Hughes' favourite word. It might be discomforting, he tells us, but we have to face up to the hard truths, he writes. So we find ourselves in a new Asia, and we do not like it, but that's the hand history is dealing us, and we must make the best of it. Notice that this hand of history robs us of our agency, so that Australia's strategic future is determined overwhelmingly by the shifting tectonic plates of great power rivalry. Australia is just a boulder sitting on one tectonic plate, which is being pushed back by another, and we'd be better off rolling across to the advancing one. Hughes' economic determinism, the kind of crude Marxism that Marx himself repudiated, not only deprives the citizens of smaller nations like Australia of the freedom to decide the future of their country, even great powers are at the mercy of history's forces. The United States may for a while cling to its past as the dominant power in Asia, but it can't resist history. And what is history's driving force? Well, Hughes is very clear on this too. Quote, the richer a country is, the stronger it is. Measures of GDP are, quote, the numbers that really matter. 
And he, as he said again tonight, was bowled over by Treasury's GDP estimates for 2030, showing China's economy substantially larger than that of the US. These, nation, these numbers sort nations into what he calls the international pecking order. So here's uh, Hughes' essential proposition. The shifting balance of economic power, amplified by political decay in the United States, will result in the withdrawal of the US from Asia, leaving it, leaving it as China's sphere of influence. He couldn't put it more bluntly than this, America will lose and China will win. Even if the United States wanted to remain in Asia, the fact is that Beijing, Beijing is more willing to go to war, he says, and in a confrontation, Washington will back down and retreat. In an exasperated response to the quarterly essay, the eminent China scholar David Shambo wrote that Hugh's argument is based on a large number of fallacious assumptions, many hyperbolic and false assertions, stretch logic, and analysis devoid of evidence. He prefaced that by saying they're good friends. <laughs> and he then goes on to shred Hugh's argument, in my view, so completely, I'm a bit surprised we're here tonight. In particular... Uh, Shambo shows that far from withdrawing from Asia, the United States has been ramping up its presence, and he provides a long list of actions as evidence of that. Pretty much every claim Hugh makes about Washington's lack of interest, lack of resolve to stay, and its retreat from the Asia-Pacific region is actually contradicted by the facts. Now, Hugh's shifted his position uh, a little bit since then, and uh, he had a very interesting article in today's South China Morning Post, uh, where he wrote that almost everyone in Washington these days seems to agree that resisting China's seemingly insatiable ambition is now America's highest strategic priority. And then he adds that they in uh, Washington assume that a new Cold War with China is going to be easy to win. Um, so... Um, in the quarterly essay, Hugh argued that the US is not resisting and is planning to withdraw from Asia, but now he's arguing that the US wants to resist but doesn't know how to and will inevitably fail. It's the same conclusion, pretty much. Well, in my meetings, and nowadays, who, who would have thought I have these kinds of meetings, in Washington with senior State Department officials, uh, leading strategic experts at think tanks, military analysts, congressional staffers and senior journalists, it's very clear that contrary to Hughes' claims, no one underestimates Beijing's determination. No one is talking about withdrawing from Asia. Uh, and they don't see it uh, as a new... Uh, sorry, and... No one thinks that a new Cold War with China will be easy to win. In fact, they all think, if you talk to them, precisely the opposite. And this is a bipartisan view. If anything, the Democrats um, in Washington are more resolved than the, pub than the Republicans uh, to be pushed back. Now, Hugh devotes, uh, in his quarterly essay, a great deal of attention to analysing the elements of American decline, the effects of 9-11 acquiescence to Russia's seizure of Crimea, uh, opinion polls, Trump's uh, egotism, Obama's weakness, and so on. But it's interesting to note 
that Hugh has virtually nothing to say about the internal stresses, contradictions and strategic pressures China faces. In previous writings, Hughes said that he doesn't need to know much about China to make his argument because it wouldn't change the story of great power rivalry. Yet since 1949, China under the one-party state has experienced a number of dramatic U-turns um, the onset of the Cultural Revolution in 66, the arrest of the Gang of Four in 76, economic liberalisation of the 1980s, the extraordinary uh, political and social upheaval that followed the Tiananmen Massacre of 1989. In the last six years, China under Xi Jinping has radically changed direction internally and externally against resistance from other, some other factions in the Chinese Communist Party. Arguably, the arrival of Xi has changed China more than the arrival of Trump has changed the United States. The US is politically fractured, but China is a pressure cooker of conflicting forces that could blow at any time, and the party leadership lives in absolute terror of it. Hugh has argued in the past that none of this, none of these happenings and conflicts in China matter. It's Thucydides or bust. Almost nothing can stop China completing its 100-year marathon to become the world's dominant power. And he claims that those who believe China's rise may well run into serious obstacles are deluding themselves with wishful thinking. It's too big already, he suggests. Yet there is, I think, a broad consensus that if the growth rate fell substantially, and even more so if there were a recession or a financial crisis, then the legitimacy and the hold on power of the Chinese Communist Party would be severely challenged. Uh, at a minimum, it would have to divert all of its attentions inwardly, uh, and that would change the whole strategic dynamic of Asia. But this is where things get a bit weird. It wouldn't matter, wrote Hugh in the quarterly essay, if the CCP fell, because a new kind of government would likely be more nationalistic and more assertive. Forgetting Taiwan, Hugh seems to believe that aggression and the desire for dominance is part of the character of the Chinese people. I think this is the kind of logical dead end that we get to with Hugh's great power theory of history, or should I say, great powers with nuclear weapons. Hugh uh, seems obsessed with nukes. In his quarterly essay, he reached the sharpest point of the argument when he wrote, Beijing would be willing to fight a nuclear war over Taiwan because it's so central to China's national priorities. Now, some time back, Hugh made this uh, uh, same uh, claim in a talk in Washington, and in, uh, according to someone I met who was there in the audience, there were some Chinese generals sitting in the front row. And when Hugh said China will prevail because it's more willing to fight a nuclear war over Taiwan, one general leant across and muttered to another, does he think we're mad? Perhaps Hugh does, because... He confuses Beijing's posturing, hysterics and bullying for what the Chinese are really like, instead of seeing it as an element of the game of psychological warfare played so skillfully by the Chinese Communist Party.
Let's say Hugh's counsel of defeat is right. What would life be like for Australian citizens living in China's sphere of influence? This question Hugh evades. Previously, Hugh argued that we don't know enough about China to say what life would be like in Australia under China's hegemony. But in the quarterly essay, he tells us brightly that, quote, China has a lot to offer. Well, I'm sure that China does have a lot to offer us. But what does the Chinese Communist Party have to offer us? And in a burst of alasology, he says we're going to have to compromise our values. He said so again tonight. But without saying which ones we're going to have to give up. Freedom of speech, freedom from arbitrary arrest, democratic practices, which of them? Now, some of us, watching the CCP's frightening internal suppression and the spread across the world of its mechanisms of censorship, interference, suppression of dissidents and generalised bullying, we think living in a CCP-dominated sphere of influence could be, could not only could, would be very unpleasant indeed. We worry about our democracy, our sovereignty, our human rights, and we're inclined to want to fight to protect them. Isn't that what the Anzacs gave their lives for? If you is right, and we're condemned by history to live under China's hegemony, then a gradual process of Hong Kongization would see this debate we're having tonight forbidden. I would not be permitted to say the things I'm saying to you. I regret to say, Hugh would be fine. Now, I'm not suggesting in any way that Hugh is influenced at all or beholden to the CCP. He's reached his positions, I'm completely convinced, by a purely intellectual process. But the truth is that the Communist Party media in China gives Hugh's views a great deal of space, uh, including the South China Morning Post uh, today, uh, now owned by Jack Ma, which we've recently discovered has been a long-term loyal member of the Chinese Communist Party. The propaganda department in Beijing understands very well that the CCP's path is smoothed to the extent that we believe Hugh's argument that China's ascendancy is virtually unstoppable and the United States will abandon Asia. And that leads us to consider the CCP's campaign of political warfare, the last part of my talk. And this is extremely important to understand because when we start to look at uh, the CCP's political warfare, we start to have a completely different view of the world and the strategic circumstances Australia faces to that of the traditional great power rivalry uh, uh, theory that uh, Hugh puts forward. Steeped as they are in Marxist-Leninist theory, Communist Party leaders in China believe that they are engaged in perpetual struggle. In a recent paper by Mankin, our own Ross Babbage and Toshi Yoshihara, they put it this way, it's abundantly clear that the party sees itself at war with the West. Its books portray a life-and-death struggle against dangerous ideological forces that could topple the regime. 
The party sees the external world, and especially the West, as a hostile force bent on undermining it at every opportunity. It must therefore be constantly vigilant. It must implement countermeasures and go on the offensive. That is, engage in political warfare. Mark Stokes and Russell Sow uh, define political warfare as follows. Political warfare seeks to influence emotions, motives, objective reasoning and behaviour of foreign governments, organisations, groups and individuals in a manner favourable to one's own political military objectives. If speaking of war seems too strong, then we need to recognise that that is how the Communist Party leadership sees it. It sees itself at war. It's not a metaphor, but a different understanding of war as a means of subduing adversaries. Essential to the PRC strategy has been to reconfigure the role of its military forces to make them expert in information, cyber and psychological warfare and to integrate these forms into conventional kinds of military pressure. These, in turn, are coordinated with other forms of power projection conducted by various arms of government, including United Front work, propaganda work, economic statecraft, and the increasingly coercive forms of diplomacy practised by Beijing. So whether we like it or not, alas... Australia and its allies are engaged in a new kind of warfare, political warfare. The aim is to subdue Australia so that we do not offer resistance to China's continued expansion and geopolitical dominance. The most important vectors of influence are through elites. Political warfare targets influential individuals with sophisticated psychological operations so that they are persuaded to argue Beijing's case. And I'm sure you don't need to think very hard in the Australian political firmament to identify several people who've been doing that on a regular basis for some years. Psychological work on elites complements Beijing's most powerful weapon of political warfare, economic persuasion and coercion. And we've seen it applied with real but always deniable restrictions on imports from Australia, uh, leading business groups to pressure the government to relent and be friendlier to Beijing. It's a view that has been absorbed into the Department of Foreign Affairs. In Taiwan, I discovered when I went there, which is long familiar with Beijing's tactics, of course, this ploy has a name. Forgive the pronunciation. Yi Shang Beijing. Use business to pressure government. Put simply then, while Hugh is preoccupied with how states use their strength to impose their will on one another, I am arguing that Beijing is playing a very different game. Rather than applying pressure from without, it's attempting, with considerable success, to undermine resistance from within. In the canonical text, The Art of War, uh, no China debate can go without a quote from it, Sun Tzu says it's always preferable to defeat, to defeat an enemy without joining battle. The aim is to psych out the enemy. And that's what's happened, I'm suggesting, uh, with Hugh when he suggests we must accept Beijing's hegemony. He's been psyched out by the CCP's political warfare. So I say all of this by way of critique of Hugh's position, 
which is a very persuasive uh, position, uh, to try to convince you that that way of looking at the world and the strategic contest which is going on between uh, China and the United States and Australia and Japan and Taiwan and India and the whole region is a very different way of uh, conducting a, um, a strategic contest. And we need to understand it that way because if we're going about it thinking in terms of great power rivalry and uh, nukes at 10 paces, then we're going to uh, not only misunderstand the situation uh, but develop a set of responses to it that more than likely will play into the hands uh, of Beijing. A new kind of uh, contest is underway and we need uh, a new, new kinds of responses uh, to uh, face up to it. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Clive. Thank you both for really stimulating presentations. Uh, and there's clearly uh, quite a few layers of divergence uh, in those positions about uh, China's intentions in global politics, about the question of the inevitability of China's rise and also about what uh, that rise might mean for Australia's values uh, and system, uh, political system of democracy. And I might let you two to duke out some of those issues in the right of reply and I'm going to ask you about something that hasn't been mentioned tonight and that's about the role of public opinion uh, because uh, successive uh, Australian governments tell us that we don't need to choose and it's not just because they're complacent, it's because they're electorally stuck. They're in a difficult position in terms of voters and voter opinion. Um, so for both of you I'd like to ask about, you know, the question is whether cutting or loosening ties with the United States uh, and accommodating China to a greater extent is a desirable proposition for Australian voters, but also whether trying to convince people uh, to give up the economic benefits of Chinese trade uh, isn't also too great of an ask. Uh, I might um, start with Hugh, if you'd yeah, like to respond. No, sure, absolutely. It's a great, it's a great way to frame the, frame the question because we don't have to choose between America and China has, has been for a long time, for over a decade now, the, the entirely bipartisan mantra of Australian political leadership on how to deal with this problem. And of course, it's a way of saying there isn't a problem. If you unpick the logic underpinning, we don't have to choose. We don't have to choose between America and China because they're not going to be strategic rivals, because the Chinese are going to back off, because America's going to make them back off. That's, that, that is the fate. That's the point I was trying to make. That is the fate they have. And, and, and like many statements in politics, it, it purports to be a statement of fact. In fact, it's a statement of hope. We don't want to choose between America and China. That's true, of course. What we want is to be able to continue to rely on China to make us rich and America to keep us safe, which is what we've done for the last few decades. It's been the best decades in Australia's history. And that's why we've been remarkably secure and remarkably prosperous, because we've been able to uh, work both of those sides of the street. Um, and, of course, politicians realise that nobody in Australia wants to forego either of those. No, no Australian politician wants to deal with the consequences, and I've referred to this, of the Chinese using those economic pressure points, which they can do, um, and which they do do, um, uh, to um, limit Australia's economic opportunities. On the other hand, nobody wants to forego the alliance with the United States. My critique of the Australian political 
community's response to this situation has been precisely that both sides of politics have encouraged Australians to believe that we can continue walking this middle path because the rivalry between the US and China won't get serious. Now, I think, as I said right at the outset, I think one of the things that Clive and I agree on is that, I think that's right, Clive, is that this is not right. We are going to have to make some tough choices. Now, we differ on how those choices should be framed and made, but the idea that somehow we can just rely on the Chinese to keep um, bolstering our economy and not making any other demands on us, and we can rely on the United States to keep us safe no matter what happens, I think that's. I think that has been demonstrably false for a long time, and I think it's been a very serious failure in Australia's political culture that our, our politicians have not been prepared to do what they must do. Of course, public, you know, nobody wants to hear that message, but the great art of political leadership is to explain to publics what's going on, what it means, what we have to do about it, and why that means we're going to have to do some things we don't like. And you know, good political leadership. I mean, for example, in the, on the issue of climate change, on which Clive's written so much, is, is a classic example where, where you know, hard truths have to be explained and the consequences laid out and the, and the best or least bad measures to, to respond to them articulated. Uh, I think we've failed on this issue, as indeed I think we've failed on climate change. Yeah, I think um, uh, as to the, the opinion of the Australian public is, I mean, I think it's undergone a rapid transformation in the last couple of years... Um, I think, you know, we're having this kind of debate tonight because there has been, you know, a broad awakening, if you like, of the Australian public to the kinds of pressures and threats that we face. And when I travel overseas to Canada and the United States uh, and indeed Europe um, and even Japan in a way, uh, people say, gee, we wish we were having the debate that you're having, uh, that it was on the front pages of the newspapers every day. And one of the remarkable things about the Australian debate is that all of the major media outlets, uh, English language ones at least, um, the ABC, Fairfax and uh, the Murdoch Press, um, they're all looking for really good China stories um, and there have been some absolute crackers. And I think that uh, it's remarkable journalism more, uh, more than anything else that has uh, uh, led us to the uh, situation that, uh, the sit that we now have. And so... Um, the reason that uh, my book, Silent Invasion, uh, did so well, uh, there was two reasons. One is that over the previous year or so, as many Australians had been primed, they knew there was a problem uh, that often, uh, just talking to hundreds of people, you know, who come to events and so on, you have brief chats to, they've noticed something that disturbs them about what's happening in Australia. It might be the buy-up of some critical infrastructure. It might be Darwin Port. It might be house prices. Uh, um, they, they worry that there's something going on. I don't, very little of it is driven by racism. Very little uh, feedback that I get, at least, expresses any kind of anti-Chinese sentiment. But many, many Australians are disturbed, and so my book provided an explanation, and that's why people are still buying it in uh, large numbers. The second reason it's done well, of course, is that um, the publisher dropped it, you know, and people love to read a book that someone's tried to stop them uh, from reading. And so I, I think that's a, a very good sign that of the, the, the kind of alert uh, cohorts of, of the Australian public um, are, are very concerned. And if you look at the political response to this, 
Um, particularly looking at foreign interference laws and various other, other measures that have been made in Canberra, such as the um, uh, foreign interference transparency scheme, the critical infrastructure measures that have been uh, uh, introduced, uh, and a whole bunch of administrative measures that don't really get talked about. Um, it's a strong bipartisan agreement that Australia needs these laws. Uh, it's been very interesting, actually, the politics of this whole debate that I've found myself uh, mixed mixed up in. Um, I've, I've had more uh, and stronger support for my book and my arguments from the conservative side of politics, which has been kind of uncomfortable for someone uh, from the left. Um, uh, there are some very strong uh, defenders and supporters in the Labor Party, but also senior members of the New South Wales right have ranted and raged and attacked me in every possible scheme. I think that way that I mean that's fairly uh, interesting, uh, easy to understand. Um, what has been kind of most fascinating for me, uh, if we're looking at kind of segments of uh, political opinion in Australia, has been the position of the Greens. Um, the uh, Greens agreed, uh, a Green uh, uh, member of the New South Wales Parliament agreed uh, to uh, host a launch of my book on behalf of the Australian Values Alliance, a group of Chinese Australians, pro-democracy Chinese Australians, at Parliament House in Sydney. And the first Green who agreed to do that came under attack from people who said, you shouldn't have anything to do with Clive Hamilton, it's xenophobia, it's anti-Chinese racism, and he pulled out. And another Green stepped in and booked, it, booked the room. So the Greens in New South Wales were split, and it was the far-left Lee Rhiannon faction of the Greens that attacked me and my book as, uh, as anti-Chinese and xenophobic and so on. But mainstream Greens, including all of them down in Tasmania, including Christine Milne, thought it was fantastic because it's all about dark money and foreign political interference in our political system. So there is a very broad uh, uh, concern uh, about this across the uh, political spectrum. And the interesting thing is it, 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 it breaks all kinds of political and factional divisions um, because fundamentally this is about protecting the basic values and democratic institutions of Australia. And Australians broadly understand that. Now, Hugh's quite right to say that the question of how much, uh, and you posed it back, how much are Australians willing to sacrifice economically, um, I suspect in the, in the right circumstances, such as, let's say, an Australian naval ship were rammed and sunk by a PLAN ship, not out of the question. I mean, they nearly did it uh, a year ago. Something very dangerous, dangerous uh, manoeuvre in the South China Sea. I think there'd be no doubt that Australians, like Americans, uh, like Taiwan, more Taiwan's a bit more tricky, Japanese, um, would be outraged and would be demanding that their government take the strongest measures, no matter what the cost. So I think it's a shifting and volatile situation. Uh, in the interests of time, I'm now going to turn us to the audience. Uh, so what I will do, I'll ask, uh, I'll take questions in batches of three. Uh, a few points before we get to that. Uh, 
first, this is being recorded. Uh, so if, if I call on you, if you stand up and wait for the microphone, uh, please talk into one of the roving, roving mics so that we can get you on tape. Uh, please identify yourselves. Uh, and I would like to try and get as many questions in as possible. So if we can keep them uh, brief, uh, let's see if we can get, try a two sentence limit. Let's see how that goes. Um, <laughs> that would be really great. So, I know, it's, I'm an optimist. So, um, yeah. Uh, yep, in the front here. Uh, yep, over here. And... Thanks. Uh, My name's Andrew Phelan. Um, so I'm just taking three questions oh, at a time. So I've just got to find the last question up the back there. Now, now you can go. Sorry. So, uh, first of all, kudos to um, Latrobe for putting on... Uh, the most anticipated bout since Mayweather and McGregor. Um, um, my background, uh, it's a bit over 30 years since my first time to China. Um, I'm not an academic, but I was a China skills DFAT trainee and a graduate of Hopkins Nanjing. I've spent my time in uh, joint ventures in China, uh, Australian companies, international companies in the last 10 years in the medtech sector working for companies like GE and Gore, both of who have taken action against uh, Chinese nationals uh, for stealing their IP. I've also been in a lot of negotiations over the years right across Asia. My question is, and uh, by the way, I follow and respect both of uh, the speakers tonight immensely. Um, my question is more to Hugh. You talked a little bit about um, some of the compromises that we would have to uh, make down the track. And I know from a negotiating point of view, there's a lot of talk about reciprocity at the moment uh, for, out of the US. Uh, what sort of um, compromises do you think we might have to make? Um, in a negotiating posture, I would always walk away from a deal that didn't make commercial sense, even if that meant I had to say, we're not going to move ahead in China right now. So I'm wondering if you could allude a little bit to more to what some of those compromises or choices might look like. Thanks. Yep. Okay, and then the next question over here. Yeah, this gentleman. Just if you could stand up. Yep, that's great. Micro, mi microphone's coming. Thank you. Uh, my name is Suki, and I'm a recent graduate of international relations from Monash University. My question is to Professor Clive Hamilton. When I was a student, I came across your book, and I decided I have to read because I was connecting it to what's happening inside Australian universities. And I have to say, Professor Clive Hamilton, what you have written is 101% correct. And second, my question is, there is no doubt that there is a lot of money coming from China to Australian universities. And this is one of the reasons that there is what you call influence or dependency. And I personally felt in the classroom, like I asked a question that why Facebook is banned or why ABC is banned, and I got into trouble just by asking this in the class full of Chinese students. And then I said, like, like some lecturers are trying to appease Chinese students in the class, like how great is China, and not talking about human rights violation done by China or anything. So why there is so much dependency on one nation? I know China is the biggest market for Australian universities. After that is India. But yeah, why there is so much dependency? Yeah, thank you. Thank you. And up the back. Hello. Uh, thank you to both speakers. Uh, fantastic arguments tonight. Um, as someone studying uh, cybersecurity currently, I'm interested to hear uh, from both speakers uh, what they think the long-term consequences of the uh, recent cyber attack on the Australian Parliament uh, will be, uh, an attack by a, a so far unnamed nation-state, uh, but what the long-term impact of that would be um, diplomatically and if there's anything the Australian government should have done, maybe perhaps in response to that. Thank you. 
first? Okay. Um, we're seeing um, uh, an, increasing, uh, an increasing severity of, of cyber attacks uh, from so-called state-based actors. Um, I think the, uh, our cyber security experts have uh, more uh, certainty about the uh, uh, origin of uh, some of those more important attacks in China, uh, but uh, our government is reluctant to say so. Uh, they're not reluctant in the United States, but here in Australia we're cowed into doing it. I think one of the um, things, one of the recommendations I would, I would make uh, as part of a China policy would be to call out bad behaviour. Um, if um, the CCP and uh, the agency, PLA and so on, uh, can get away with um, cyber attacks and a whole range of interference uh, activities uh, without being... Uh, called out in public, then that only emboldens them to uh, carry on doing it. But I think um, there is a lot of naivety around. I mean, uh, uh, a colleague of mine, a sinologist in Berlin, uh, was despairing on the phone the other day because Angela Merkel uh, was talking about, or her cabinet is talking about, having a no-spy agreement with China. I mean... Really? <laughs> and therefore, you can have Huawei in building your 5G network because Xi Jinping has said, don't worry, we won't spy on you anymore. Uh, it's really quite astonishing. I think, I think on the long-term impacts of the Parliament House hack and a number of others that we've had are hard to say. I mean, one of the things that uh, the PRC and other states do uh, is to gather uh, personal information on... Um, on political leaders, but also on up-and-coming political leaders. They have dossiers, and the more embarrassing uh, uh, material that they can get, the better. I mean, I have no doubt that some political leaders uh, in Australia are effectively being blackmailed by uh, foreign governments because of indiscretions that those foreign governments know about. Sorry to say that, but I'm pretty convinced that uh, that is the case. And the more uh, data that can be sucked up by these cyber hacks, and if you look at the pattern of it, in the United States in particular, uh, and in Singapore, extremely important one recently, Singapore is not afraid, incidentally, to call out this thing, this, this kind of behaviour. Uh, we can see an attempt to gather very private information um, on um, senior politicians and others. Um, just briefly on the university's question, because... Like you, sir, I, I worry deeply about it, and I'm, I'm shocked. I, I'm constantly shocked. When I'm no longer shocked, you know, shoot me. Uh, but, uh, you know, your story that you want to talk about certain aspects of China in your lecture theatres in Australian universities, and you are shut down by your Australian lecturers because they don't want to offend the Chinese students in the class. I mean, this is shocking. This is truly a shocking event. And you ask, why is this happening? And I think it's because, frankly, uh, university administrators uh, value money from China more than they value academic freedom. I mean, what other, other conclusion can you draw? And not only that, with the commercialisation of universities over the last 20, 30 years, I think that although university administrators um, talk the talk of academic freedom, I actually don't think they really know what it is. I mean, academic freedom is worthless 
unless you are willing to sacrifice something significant in order to defend it. And our universities are unwilling to sacrifice anything material to defend academic freedom on their campuses. Uh, answered the question from the gentleman at the front and the question on the cyber attack um, at once, because I think it provides quite an interesting case study. You're right. You know, government's a practical business, not that unlike um, business. You know, in the end, you look at what's the costs and what's the benefits of a particular course of action. And the classic example is how you respond to the cyber attacks of Parliament House. And, you know, I'm happy to go along with the uh, consensus that that it came from China. I don't know whether it did or not, but I think it's highly plausible. And I, I agree with Clive. We should, we should call the Chinese out on these things. But we should also recognise that it's perfectly likely that the Chinese will bite back. Maybe they are actually biting back with the, with the coal shipments um, uh, into Dalian. I, I, I don't know. I don't think anybody knows. But um, it's certainly... It's clearly any Australian government official or minister making a decision about how, to, how directly to challenge China, call out the Chinese on a cyber attack, if it was them, if they got good evidence it was them, um, would have to take into account the way in which China might respond. And that's, that's a choice you make. And, if it's going to, and, you know, in the end, these things become quite practical. People like to say our principles are, are not, cannot be compromised. Well, that's something people say, but it's simply not true. We compromise our principles all the time. So you make a judgment. You say, OK, is it worth sacrificing $500 million worth of, of trade in order to call out the Chinese, or a billion, or somewhere, somewhere I expect the government will say the price is too high. Now, it's a very unsatisfying answer. It's not a very satisfying answer to your question. It's a very unsatisfying answer to yours because what it means is we're, we're kind of adrift in a very uncertain world in which we're going to have to make some very complex judgments about what really matters to us and how much it matters to us. Yes, yes, welcome to, welcome to the Asian century. Can I just make one point on the... On your question, sir, about about uh, influence of, of uh, China on our universities, because I, 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 and it's really not to disagree with anything Clive said, but just to put a gloss on it. I think in the long run, this might sound a little bit like I, I'm not employed by a university anymore, so I can say this with a completely clear conscience. I don't think I don't think it's quite good enough just to blame the universities for the predicament they find themselves in. Successive decisions by Australian governments, supported by Australian voters have seen a choice by this country to put the funding of our tertiary education institutions into the hands of education exports. And the reality of the market is that of that, Chinese students constitute a very important proportion. Now, there is a legitimate debate about how significant this question of Chinese attempts to influence um, what goes on Australian campuses is. I won't enter into that debate, but, even if, but, but just looking at it, so to speak, as a possibility, and it's clearly a possibility, if Australia chooses to want to defy what Beijing says in the way our, our universities are run, that's entire, that is entirely our right and it's something that, if it's happening, it's something we should do. If China decides then to stop giving students exit visas to come and study in Australian universities, that, frankly, is China's right. We then have to decide how we respond. Do we just see the funding for our universities lapse? Do we start charging our own students fees that genuinely cover the cost of their education and stop being subsidised by Chinese students? Or do we start paying, paying more taxes and funding our universities more privately, that, more publicly? That, that is a classic set of choices we have to make. That, that, those are choices for us to make. And in a sense, it's our fault 
if we leave our universities vulnerable to Chinese pressure. I'm not, that's not to absolve the Chinese of the blame for trying to do this, but if we leave ourselves open for it, that's a decision we've taken. I think myself it will be a wrong decision. I think we do need to take steps to insulate our tertiary system from that kind of influence. Okay, I was hoping to get another round of questions in, uh, but I'm also worried that we're going to get thrown out by the library. So, uh, no more questions? Another round? Another round. Okay, Rob Mann says we can have another round. Hooray. Um, okay, wow. It's all men as well. There you go. Uh, oh, okay. Uh, yes, up the front. And we will also have um, you and I saw your... Uh, the. Um, yep, you in the fourth row over there uh, and you, sir, in the middle there. Um, my name's Shelley. Sorry, I'm um, maybe naive. Um, I haven't read any of your books, um, but I am an Australian citizen and, uh, you know, the comment I'd like to make listening to what you're saying tonight about... Listening to what you're saying about um, economic... Um, um, money that's coming in from China. Um, I certainly wonder about how much of that ever trickles down to the Australian population um, because I think, you know, over the last couple of decades, you know, I think there's been a huge lessening. Um, and I suppose I'm just wondering... Um, um, oops, I can't even remember what I was going to say. Uh, the The... The amount of land that's been purchased by China. So I'm just wondering if either of you know, um, you know, and what your your opinions are about how much has been sold off to China. That's yeah. Sorry. Well done. Well done. Uh, uh, John Garner here, and thank you, Clive and Hugh, for a terrific conversation. Uh, I think I can detect in both of your. Uh, presentation today and evolution in your thinking since your latest last big publications. Um, it's been a little bit over a year since your last quarterly essay, Hugh, and a little bit over a year since Silent Invasion, um, Clive. Can you tell me how your views have evolved or changed, but without saying that you were more right than you thought you were at the time? Okay. Yeah, my name's Michael. Thank you for the talk. Tonight we've spoken a lot about politics and diplomacy and military. Something we haven't touched on until just before was education and language. And my question as a student is how do we ensure that our current students looking into the next 20, 30 years are educated to be culturally bilingual so that we can understand the norms and the language and the values so that we don't fall victims of this sort of hysteria that's going up in mainstream media and so that we can make well-informed decisions um, as we become the... Um, political class of the next 30 years. Who wants to start? <laughs> um, look, how much, how much of the dough gets through to the Australian population? I, I'm not an economist. Um, but I suspect, without sounding naive about it, I suspect a fair bit does. Um, uh, of course, some of it gets through to the shareholders. Some of it gets to the government. Um, through royalties and various other things, and therefore into consolidated revenue, quite, quite, quite a lot goes into the pay packets of the academics who are teaching the students. I mean, no, well, that, that, that's 
been a, certainly been a portion of my income uh, over the last few years um, into the into the tradies that are building the mines and all of that. So I, I think I think there are genu there's genuine economic benefit to Australia of the fact that 38% of our exports are going to China. And had it not been for that, had it not been for the fact that the Chinese are uplifting, it's not far short of a million tonnes of iron ore a day. I think a day then we would be a, a poorer country. So I, I think, um, you know, I, I think it's hard to deny there are economic benefits. There's a separate debate about whether those benefits are worth what we're paying for them in terms of the sorts of concerns that, uh, that, that, that Clive has raised. John, I, I hate to disagree with you, but actually I don't think my views have changed on these core issues we've been talking about. I don't think they've changed materially since... Uh, the quarterly essay was published. One, no, two interesting, significant things have happened. Uh, the first is that um, the Australian government, uh, and partly because of your work and Clive's, launched into what was for a time, for a few weeks, quite a virulent critique of China's activities in Australia. Um, uh, and produced the foreign interference legislation and so on. Um, uh, and that, for a while, made the Australian government look like uh, was on the leading edge of countries standing up to China. Um, I say for a time because very soon after that we started seeing the reset. And I think if you look, if you track the way Australian government has handled China since then, it's been rather more timid. And uh, so had I, it was if I was writing a quarterly essay again today, I would focus more on these more recent examples of, of, um, of our government's unwillingness to risk the relationship with China, which is, I think, a very significant, and not contrary to the points you guys are making, but I think it's a very significant piece of data. The second big thing that's happened... Um, is that uh, in, at the very end of 2017, within a few weeks after my essay was published, the US national security strategy declared China a strategic rival. And as Clive said in his remarks, you can certainly get the impression going to Washington today that, that Washington is now, after decades of being, don't worry about China, we know how to deal with it, uh, you know, they've been extremely complacent. Um, uh, they've now... Um, to a man and woman, uh, almost to a man and woman, decided that China really is a serious challenge and they're going to stand up to them. And uh, what struck, struck me very forcibly about that, and that's the point I was making in the South China Morning Post article that Clive managed to see, and I say I haven't seen it yet, but um, I hope they printed what I sent them, um, was, was, was how totally content-free the United States' decision on how to implement that has been. The broad hypothesis in Washington is that all they need to do is to keep doing more of what they've done before and it'll all go away. Well, the trouble is we know they've been doing what they've been doing for, before for 10 years and it hasn't stopped the Chinese. There's no reason to think it's going to happen now. That would amplify, that would, that would reinforce my pessimism about the likelihood that the US will succeed in pushing back effectively and therefore increase my confidence that the very gutsy prediction in my title, without America, might have been Chris's title anyway, and the essay's title, Without America, is true. And, 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 and I'd add to that at this point that, um, that there has been one voice in Washington that has not joined the chorus, Donald Trump. Donald Trump has never publicly 
identified China as a strategic rival or committed himself to the new Cold War with China. Uh, the closest he's come is to sign the Congress's ARIA Act, which he did as which is an act by Congress designed to improve America's capacity to push back against China, which he did along with, I think, 15 other acts without saying a word about it. Uh, I, Trump is completely uncommitted to this, and what Trump is not committed to in today's Washington does not happen. Um, Interest of time. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Um, thank you. Thank you for that. Uh, that's all uh, difficult. Okay. Well, just on Shirley's uh, question, because I don't want to let let that uh, go. I think uh, certainly some Chinese investment, like all forms of foreign investment in Australia. Um, is uh, economically productive and does benefit local works. I'm thinking all of those university lecturers, for example, who wouldn't otherwise have jobs, you know, the construction workers and so on. Um, it's much more complicated than that, though. Um, I do hear uh, complaints uh, from people about how companies taken over by Chinese investors start operating in a very different way. Uh, for example, I had a phone call not long ago from a GP in rural New South Wales who uh, was uh, upset because a Chinese company had bought out uh, the local GP clinic and the Australian doctors were being shoved out and Chinese doctors were being brought in. Um, she was very credible on that. I have no uh, reason for, for doubting it, but there are issues there. But I think the bigger one is dark money. I think there's a huge amount of dark money coming into Australia just as there is in Canada, uh, where there's more attention to it, and perhaps because there's more of it. Um, and I think that our authorities aren't devoting enough resources to trying to uh, track down the provenance of large uh, amounts of money coming from China into Australia and deciding whether it really is a good idea to have money that uh, has come from uh, corrupt sources flooding into the country. Um, on... Uh, uh, John's uh, question. Um, yeah, I mean, my, I'd say my views have certainly uh, deepened and perhaps and refined since uh, the book uh, came out. I mean, they can't help but do so if I keep reading stuff and talking to people on China every day for a year. That naturally uh, is going to happen. One of the things that has my, where my views have shifted or developed is, is on the kinds of issues we've been talking about. Uh, tonight, because I've been drawn into uh, this debate, uh, or shoved into it, uh, perhaps I should say. And so uh, it, it definitely gets more complicated. Uh, I mean, talking about foreign interference in Australia from the PRC and what we should do in Australia to protect ourselves from that is relatively straightforward, in my view. Um, talking about how that affects our role in, in Asia, our alliances, our relationship to the United States, the implications of that that becomes much, much more difficult. And so I'm much less certain about my views um, as, to, um, uh, as to where that is going to go. I just do need to respond to Hugh's comments on the, re the, the reset. I don't think there was a reset. I mean, sure, the language changed. There was uh, a great deal made of a speech that uh, Prime Minister Turnbull gave, I think, at the University of New South Wales when he used conciliatory language. And certain people in the media thought, oh, he's completely shifted his view, he's now sucking up to Beijing. But if you looked at what, what he and the government had actually done, 
There was absolutely no change at all. Uh, the foreign interference laws, uh, the whole range of other laws, administrative arrangements, the way in which um, Home Affairs and ASIO had been reoriented to uh, help uh, try and resist this, certain decisions by the FERB on uh, Chinese uh, investment proposals in critical infrastructure, Huawei. I mean, there was no change at all in, in the practice of what the Australian government was doing in order to muscle up to China. Um, the optics shifted and seemed to work pretty well. Uh, great. Good piece of um, uh, subtle policy uh, uh, making and policy presentation. And one other point um, on Hughes. You talked in your, in your talk and you repeated it, that when you look at the US strategy, it's completely content-free. I think this is a misreading. I think what's happening is that in the last 12 months... There's been a dramatic, or maybe 18, dramatic shift in Washington uh, in its understanding of the nature of the threat. They've been totally preoccupied with Russia. And the few voices saying the big threat is not Russia, it's China, suddenly their voices were listened to. And so there has been this enormous shift towards a focus on China. Too late, uh, but what is happening is not it's content-free. They just don't know what to do yet. And if you go and talk to these people who give this advice and try to think things through in Washington. They're, they want to find out what other people are doing. They're having debates and seminars and internal discussions about how to push back and deal with China. They're working it out. If it's content-free, it's only because they haven't worked it out yet. But they're getting there. So that view, I think, if I can uh, uh, humbly suggest to you, that view that you put forward will change in a year or two when the US, like every country works out how best to respond to the aggressive push. That, I mean, it's very new. It's only under Xi Jinping and only perhaps in the last three or four years that China has, has uh, come out from the hide and bide and we start to see the aggressive, assertive uh, and subversive nature of the CCP regime. And you don't come up with a, a, a solution, a response to that in six months. It takes a few years to work it through and that's what's happening. Now, we have uh, promised a right well, of reply. No, we, we owe the gentleman the question about education. Oh, OK. Yeah. Sorry. Yes. Let me just touch uh, briefly on that because it's a very important point. Uh, right at the heart of my argument, and I do just want to slightly differ from something Clive said here, right at the heart of my argument is we do need to understand China very well. What I have said, what he has correctly noted, is that I don't regard myself as understanding China very well. I'm not a sinologist. I don't speak Chinese, and I think this is a real, you know, deficiency in my capacity to, 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 to understand what goes on in China. I don't think it entirely disqualifies me from making some judgments about it, but I do recognise that's a deficiency. And if we, are going to, if we are going to live in an Asia in which China is the most influential power, which I believe is the most likely outcome, then we're going to have to know a lot more about China than we do now, and right at the heart of that is educating a generation of young Australians about China, which includes, of course, the language and everything else, and it, and it means building, as I said in my remarks, a subtle and sophisticated and nuanced understanding of an immensely complex country. And, you know, if there's, if there's, if there's one thing that Australian governments could really start taking seriously, it, it would be the generation of a, of a, uh, a creation of a generation of China literate um, analysts 
not just analysts in the government sense, but participants in the Australian debate that could help us to understand China the way we understand other great countries we've, we've dealt with. And it's, it's going to be a very tough ask, but that, I think it's a really central um, uh, challenge for all of us. Each of you a right of reply. We are running over time, like all good public events. Uh, so maybe uh, Hugh, would you like to uh, take yes, a couple yes, of minutes? Yes, yes, and I'll be really, I'll be really quick. Um, a, a great opportunity to, to, to debate, and I really appreciated it, um, and appreciated the questions. Really good way of drawing out some of the issues. I, I, I think I'm going to allow myself to say that Clive's remarks and observations have confirmed the proposition I put earlier. That is that he and I differ primarily on how easy it's going to be to defeat China. I do not share his confidence that America is going to get its act together. Um, the Congress, as I mentioned before, uh, just uh, at the end of last year published uh, an, an act, the ARIA Act, the uh, Asia Reassurance and something or other act, um, which was designed as a kind of a big component of America's pushback against China. And it had funding of $1.5 billion a year. $1.5 billion a year. Now, it's costing the ACT government $1.5 billion to put a light rail from one side of Canberra to the other. It doesn't get you very far. It's a measure, I think, of how seriously America continues to underestimate the scale of the challenge it faces in China, that it still believes that the kinds of measures it's talking about are going to be adequate to win this, to win this contest when friends and critics like David Shamvar that Clive mentioned criticise me by saying, no, no, we're doing a huge amount, actually look at what they're doing. Well, the US military posture in Asia is not changing materially. The US diplomatic footprint in Asia is not advancing. The US attempt to counter the Belt and Road Initiative as a piece of um, geo-economic warfare is minuscule. Now, maybe they'll get their act together. It's possible. I wouldn't rule that out. But that will require the United States to commit resources of an immense scale, on a scale that nobody in the American political or policy arena has yet argued America would com should commit. It's easy to say, let's take on China, if you assume that it's not going to cost you a few percent of GDP. And until I hear Americans acknowledging that and acknowledging that in order to do so, they are going to have to accept the kind of risks of nuclear warfare that they accepted in the Cold War against the Soviet Union, I'm not going to believe they're going to make it happen. Likewise, I think we've got to be very, very careful not to be too optimistic about China. Of course China could fail. It could falter in all kinds of ways. I just don't think we can prudently bet our future on the fact of that happening. The most likely outcome, and the one we should therefore give our most policy attention to, is the one in which China does succeed in becoming the world's biggest economy and does succeed in becoming the primary power of Asia and work out how to deal with that. Now, if it doesn't happen, then uh, we'll have got lucky. But the second thing that comes away from this is a confirmation of the thought that did emerge in the last couple of pages of Clive's book, that he is amongst those who believes that we should be willing to go to war with China in order to defend the existing regional order and contain China's... Um, challenge. I, as I say, I, I don't think there are no circumstances under which I'd agree with that. But I do think it's a terribly serious, terribly serious judgment to make because of the nature of the war. 
just like the decision he mentioned the Anzacs. It's the decision to go to war in 1914. 60,000 dead. It was a terribly serious choice. We need to be. We need to think really carefully about that one, and I'm not confident that we have yet. A third point is that what what seems to me to to, to, to present that challenge to us is not uh, so much my model of politics. My position is that it's my model of politics that imposes this mental framework that that that, that, embedded, that embodies these or, or presents these challenges. And his alternative model is a model of political warfare, that what's really going on here is not a classic power political contest in the old-fashioned sense, but something new and different. Well, maybe, but I just don't see the evidence for that. So far, all the evidence is that this one is playing out just the way major strategic rivalries in the past have played out. If two years from now, five years from now, there's a major war between the United States and China, no historian is going to look back and say, well, we didn't see that coming. No, no, what they'll say is, ah, oh, oh, well, that figures. Look at what happened with the rise of France in the late 17th century. Look at what happened with the re-rise of France at the end of the 18th century. Look at what happened with the rise of Germany and Japan in the 19th century. Look at what happened with the rise of the Soviet Union in the early 20th century. The, the, the sad reality is, alas, <laughs> this is the way great powers behave. And I think it's too optimistic, imprudently optimistic, to presuppose that the world works differently today than the way it's worked in the past. The last point is a question about agency. Well, Clive's point says that my model robs us of agency. Well, I'd say it's the facts, what's happening out there that robs us of agency. But I also don't think limits our agency. It doesn't rob us of agency. Australia has choices to make. And, but what the rise of China does is change the framework in which those choices have got to be made. And what we need to do is to understand that framework as clearly as possible so we can make those choices, so we don't rob ourselves of agency. We don't rob ourselves of agency by going into a future we don't understand. Thank you. Now, finally, Clive. Thanks very much. Um, on the US, it's... it's it's very hard to know how the US will evolve on this question. Hughes says that uh, the US is talking tough, but it's not putting any resources into it. But I just go back to the fact that this shift in US, the US position is not much more than 12 months old, uh, two years in certain limited quarters in decision-making parts and influential parts of, of the United States. Uh, if you look at what's happening in the US military, uh, and this is a very slow-moving machine, of course, but it's shifting resources, it's reorienting itself, it's starting to think much more uh, about, uh, about conflict uh, in the South China Sea and the East China Sea. The US is uh, starting to think a lot more, uh, despite uh, Donald Trump's... the madness of King Donald, um, uh, much more about the alliances... Um, and, you know, the great ship of state, even if the um, captain at the moment is bonkers, um, isn't turned around uh, so easily, and there are uh, influential, clever uh, people in the United States who understand not just that there's a big threat, but they're starting to come to grips with the nature of that threat. 
And I simply don't think it's true that they, and certainly I, don't believe that countering the threat of the uh, uh, China under the CCP is going to be easy. Quite the opposite. I think it's going to be extraordinarily difficult because it's so hard to get a grip on it. Because of the nature of the political warfare that the CCP is carrying out across the world, not least uh, in our own region and in our own country. And that's why the, uh, uh, the, the, the question of agency also comes up in this context. And it's true that uh, with our foreign interference laws, uh, with our uh, uh, um, uh, foreign uh, interference transparency scheme, the other things I've mentioned with the Huawei decision, Australia has, in terms of internal affairs, um, uh, uh, carried out, expressed a great deal of agency. And I can't tell you the number of delegations and visitors that come to Australia to learn from the Australian experience. We're leading the world in the pushback in terms of how to protect our domestic institutions and democratic practices from PRC uh, interference. And the rest of the world is coming to ask us what we're doing, how we're doing it, uh, and all sorts of other political questions associated with it. And so that's why I, um, I'm critical, uh, Hugh, and despite your rejoinder, will continue to be critical of the way you frame it in traditional, you know, uh, Napoleonic uh, terms as, uh, you know, uh, Westphalian states exerting pressure on each other uh, and, the, and the pressure points are governed mainly by the size of one's military forces and one's willingness uh, to use them. I think in this era of political warfare, it's not just China, uh, Russia is doing it as well, but I think the CCP has mastered it in a way Russia can't because it simply doesn't have uh, the resources or indeed the leadership in order to carry it, carry it out. And so it's a mistake to think that the situation that we're now confronted with and our strategic policy choices are similar to those kinds that we've made in the past because the circumstances have been similar in the past. Hugh, I notice, uses this phrase, the new Cold War. This is CCP propaganda term. That's how they're framing it. So these kinds of things creep into our debate. The more we think of it as a Cold War like the battle with the Soviet Union, the less we understand the kind of uh, political warfare that the CCP uh, is engaged in. And so when you uh, um, uh, critique me, uh, Hugh, for talking in the last pages of, of my book about um, our willingness uh, to go to war uh, in the way that Australians at certain points have been uh, willing uh, to go to war, uh, particularly in the two world wars, um, I actually think it's important to say that. I actually think it's important for we Australians to say that we value our democratic institutions um, and our human rights that we practice in our country, in our streets, in our universities, um, in our parliaments, in our free speech, as we're exercising it tonight. These are things worth fighting for. And that's why I object to the kind of analysis that Hugh has, which, lead, which leads us to a council of defeat. And I think that uh, maybe I'm uh, a participant in the political warfare game as well. Uh, but at least I'm playing the right game. And unless you're playing that game, you certainly are going to lose.
I'm sure you'll all agree with me that was an incredibly rich and insightful, interesting, at times provocative discussion from both of our panellists. So um, that's all we have time for tonight, but I'm hoping that you'll join me once again for thanking our very generous uh, panellists for sharing their expertise and their time with us tonight.